Matthew chapter 6. In our series through Matthew, this is message number 15, entitled, Two Ways to Live. So we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 34, and we'll start with reading verses 19 to 21. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount teaching that good works should be shown and they should be seen. And in the beginning of chapter 6, he applies tension to that with a warning to be careful not to do our good works in order to be seen. So the emphasis was on the motive behind the work, whether giving or praying or fasting or really we could uh, include a whole lot other works besides. But, but regardless of, of what it is, the work is that we're doing, it's the motive behind it that Jesus was focusing on. He contrasted the way that hypocrites do such works with the way that he commanded these works to be done. Now, hypocrites are, and just to generalize in, in the New Testament, hypocrites are religious pretenders, um, those who are deceived about the state of their own salvation, those who are deceiving many others in turn about it as well. They, they appear to be pious and religious people and, and upright people, but they don't have true faith. Now, the pretenders that Jesus spoke about, these hypocrites, are, would be people that are motivated by being seen and being rewarded by the people that see them, and so they make sure to be seen doing the various acts that they are performing. And of course, the result, Jesus said, is no reward from God for those works. So Jesus taught that we're not to be motivated by being seen. We're not to be motivated by being rewarded by people on the earth in the works that we do for him. Now, we do our works for him, and the Father sees, and the Father will reward in the future. Now, that focus on rewards, which gets repeated throughout that first part of chapter number 6, actually leads right into this next section in verses 19 to 34 that deals with what we treasure. Jesus contrasts those rewards now and future rewards as earthly rewards now and heavenly rewards later. And the question in this, in this part of the chapter is about which do we treasure? Which do we value and prize? What is it that we esteem the most highly? And closely connected to that actually is the subject of worry and trust. So the question is, what are we living for and what or whom are we trusting in. So as we look at this passage, we'll divide it into the two parts. So verses 19 to 24, where Jesus speaks about two treasures and two masters. And in verses 25 to 34, where Jesus speaks about two worries. So we'll start with the first part, 
two treasures, two masters, verse number 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. So this opening statement, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, um, literally says something along the line of don't amass wealth on the earth. Now, from verse 21 a little later, it's clear that where your heart is, is the, the real issue in this concern and this command. So the primary focus of our lives, the primary goal of our lives should not be simply to accumulate money and the things that money can buy. That should not be our driving force in life. And Jesus emphasizes the temporary nature of earthly wealth. He talks about them being corrupted or stolen. In other words, earthly wealth and earthly possessions are subject to decay. They're subject to deterioration, as well as being subject to theft and loss, catastrophic loss and all sorts of of loss. In other words, the things of the earth can truly be here today and gone tomorrow. I don't care how long you've spent accumulating, how long you've invested or planned or, or what have you, they can truly be gone tomorrow. And so that's what Jesus is, is speaking about. When you lay up treasures of things on the earth, when that's your goal, that's, that's the driving force of your life, then you are giving your life to accumulating things that won't last, much less, we could say, won't satisfy. And on top of this, on top of this, even if you manage to get them to last, as the old saying goes, you can't take it with you when you die. So one way or another, you're going to be parted from these earthly accumulations. One way or or another, it's going to happen. And so this is something that we are commanded not to pursue as our life goal. Verse number 20, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. So the contrast here is to accumulate treasure in heaven. And of course, from the context, we don't have to wonder about what that means, laying up treasure in heaven in heaven refers to the future rewards that have been promised for righteous works as we've seen in the passage prior to this. So things such as giving to the poor and needy and and praying. And again, we could add more works than just these um, besides. But, But this is the laying up, the accumulating of treasures or rewards in heaven that Jesus is talking about. So the emphasis here is to make a contrast between the treasure in heaven and the treasure on earth. So the treasure on earth is temporary, it's very fragile, and it is certain that we will be parted from it. Treasure in heaven is secure. Treasure in heaven is is permanent. And treasure in heaven is something that we will possess forever. Never decays, never depreciates, never disappears. Notice in verse 21, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So here he is explaining 
the reasoning behind this command. And of course, heart, it is cardia, it does refer to the, to the organ, um, but throughout the New Testament usage and even, even some usage in the Old Testament and referring to other internal organs as well, um, is a way that that refers, it refers to the mind, to the, uh, to the immaterial inner part of a person that includes such things as the emotions, the feelings, the, the will, the thoughts, and, and, and all of that. So having your heart be where your treasure is means being devoted, being committed, being driven by that treasure. In other words, you're guided and controlled by it. You're wholly given over to it. And the point that Jesus is driving at here is that you cannot pursue both ways. You can't give yourself wholly to accumulating treasure on earth and accumulating treasure in heaven. You can't divide your loyalties that way. And he's actually going to build to that point in these verses that follow. Verse number 22. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. So Jesus uses an analogy here makes reference to um, the eye and the body and, and the ability to see. So the word for single that is used here is, is a word that um, really means healthy. Uh, it means to be whole or sound in the sense of, of functioning properly. And so Jesus is, is making the statement to start here that if your eye is healthy, then the whole body is full of light. In other words, in other words, you can see clearly. If the, if the eye is healthy, then you can see clearly. The whole body is, is benefited by that, you might say. And then he goes on, verse 23. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, the contrary point that he's making is that, and that word for evil, it can cover quite a range. I mean, the use of, of evil in the translation um, sort of gives us the idea of some sort of moral impurity or, or problem, and that's not exactly what Jesus is getting at at this point. He's saying if your eye is bad, if it is dysfunctional, all right, so it is put over against being healthy, if it's unhealthy, if it's sick, if it's diseased, he says you cannot see clearly. And what he means by referring to the eye this way, he's not changed subjects, he's not, he's not gone to, to some new topic or just sort of bringing in some, something random or stray. He's saying you cannot properly judge or discern. So if you can't see clearly, then you cannot judge and discern between things. You may have trouble with uh, persistence or the perception of distances. You may have uh, trouble um, differentiating colors or or patterns or or, or all all sorts of things. You can't judge, you can't discern properly. And and one way that we see this um, illuminated is actually in the parable that comes later in Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to go ahead and read it, and we'll, we'll get there eventually to it. But uh, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. For the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. 
and said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and that whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again he went out about the sixth hour and did likewise, and the ninth hour, I'm sorry, went about at the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle, and saith unto them, Why stand ye here idle all the day? And they say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers, and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny, which is the equivalent of a, of a day's wage. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the goodman of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, the first last for many be called, but few chosen. So in this parable, these complaining laborers, Jesus said, had an evil eye. They had an unhealthy eye. In other words, they could not see the situation clearly, and so therefore they judged that they had been mistreated. They had been done wrong. They couldn't see the, the goodness of the master in hiring them, in paying them according to his word, and then doing the same with the others. Could not recognize the mercy that was shown. It said that he went out about the 11th hour. There's one hour left in the day to, to work, and there's men that had been there with, with families to feed and, and, and needs of their own, had been there all day long and couldn't find anyone to hire them for the day to work, and he hires them and pays them a full day's wage for their work. So again, the point is being able to see clearly and to distinguish true treasure. So that, and that's the point of this passage. So we have two treasures here. We have the treasure on earth and we have the treasure in, in heaven. And Jesus says, if, if your eye is healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. You will see clearly and you will discern properly which is the treasure that is truly of the greatest worth. If, on the other hand, your eye is bad and it is unhealthy, you're not going to see clearly, and you're not going to properly judge which treasure is of the most worth, and therefore you're going to give your life to pursuing that that is temporary, is fleeting, and it does not satisfy. Verse 24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So this is actually the concluding application here that Jesus has been driving at this point about the two treasures. So the word for serve that is used here, it is the verb form of doulos. It does mean to serve as a slave. That is what Jesus is talking about, to be enslaved. And he says a slave cannot be enslaved to two masters, in essence. Now remember, the very nature 
of doulos, slavery, bond, slavery, is to be owned by another, is to be completely subjected to the will of that master, to the point that you essentially have no will of your own. What, what determines the course of your life is the master who owns you. And he says you cannot be a doulos to two different masters, two different kurios. The point is, Jesus gives the conclusion there at the end of verse 24, you cannot be the slave of God and be the slave of money, as that is the um, implication of that term there, mammon, that he uses. So if you are enslaved to money, to the pursuit of material things upon the earth, you cannot, he says, be the slave of God. Now we go to the next part, the two worries, verses 25 to 34, which is a, a longer section, but still yet connected. Verse 25, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? And here again we're going to encounter some repetition as we go through this section. So the connection between going from laying up treasure on earth, not being able to properly discern what is the treasure of greatest worth um, to commit your life to pursuing, the connection between these and worry, which doesn't really seem at first maybe to be connected, but the truth is is that when we view earthly wealth as true treasure, we can be motivated for it really in two different ways, what Jesus is getting at. We can be motivated, on the one hand, by greed. So our greed and our lust and our desire for money and, and possessions and all the, the things that that affords can motivate us such that we become enslaved to accumulating these material things. But we can also be motivated by what we might call worry, by fear. It's, it's, it's a drive that fuels the life of the person. Now, Jesus addressed in verses 19 to 24 the first kind, being motivated more by greed or selfish indulgence so that your, your life is given over to the pursuit of accumulating earthly things. And now, in this last part of this chapter, Jesus is going to address the second, being motivated by worry. He says, take no thought, and, and the word that's translated here essentially means anxious care. He's not saying, oh, you just never give a thought about what you're going to eat or drink or, or so on. He's saying, don't be anxious over food and drink and clothing. And we might classify these as basic essentials, basic necessities of life. And Jesus asked if life is not about more than these. Is life simply about one meal to the next meal, one um, outfit of, of clothes to the, to the next outfit of clothes, and, and so on? Is life about more than these? In other words, our existence in this present life as followers of Christ being made in the image of God 
is more than being consumed about these basic things. And again, we could, could add to that very, very uh, temporary in nature. Um, the food uh, gets eaten. You know, the pantry gets empty. The refrigerator gets, gets empty. The clothes wear out or uh, sometimes we outgrow them, whatever the case may be. Verse 26, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? So Jesus gives an illustration for each of these concerns, food and drink on the one hand and the clothing on the other, these basic necessities. And he begins here with the food and drink part. And he points out that the birds of the air, they don't have jobs. They don't work the fields. They don't gather a harvest into barns, but God feeds them. Now, God feeding the birds doesn't mean that the birds lay around in easy chairs with their mouths open just waiting for God to drop food in from heaven. I mean, birds do work for their food or else they die. But the point that Jesus is making is, is they're not consumed with worry so that they pursue the accumulation of wealth to counter the threat of being without. That's the point. Now, Jesus, obviously here, he's not condemning sowing and reaping and, and even barns, and these things are, are a part of life, part of life on the earth, and a, and a necessary part of life. But he condemns this sort of obsessive worry that would drive and control a person's life to the point that they are devoted to amassing wealth because they are so worried and anxious about the future. Jesus points out that God cares for the birds of his creation. God has, has provided food and has provided means for them to sustain their existence, even though they're, they're very short-lived and they may seem quite insignificant in the grand scheme of things. And they work to find their food, and they find that food. Why? Because God has supplied it. God has provided for it. And the point that Jesus is making is to consider if, if God cares for these small, insignificant creatures in his creation, if God cares and provides for them, then will God care and provide for those that he loves more than the birds. And that's essentially the point Jesus is making. As a, as a, as a child, as children of your heavenly father, you are, you are more important to him than the birds. That's not to say that the birds and the other aspects of his creation are not important or that he doesn't care about them. But he says, you are more important more valuable, more highly esteemed to God than they are. And the point that Jesus is making is that obviously he cares more for his people than the birds and he will take care of them as well. Verse 27, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? Now the phrase here in the Greek, as I understand it, can uh, really be taken a couple of ways. It can refer literally to adding to one's height, um, or it can refer 
in a more figurative sense to adding time to one's life. It, it can really be either way, and usually a translation is going to follow which sense they think is, is the one in this verse. Um, really, when you study it in context, uh, it really seems like the latter sense, adding time to your life, would, would be more uh, appropriate. But, but either way, um, actually the point that Jesus made is still the same, either way. What can you accomplish by worrying about it? So, in other words, if you think about the birds, they're not fed by worrying about it. Yes, they, they do work, and they hunt and peck, and they, they do whatever, and they, they find the food for them, but they're not fed by worrying about it. So what can you accomplish by worrying about it? Can you add anything to your life? Can you add to the length of your life? Can you add... Um, to your height, to your stature? Can you add anything? Do, do, do you add happiness and joy to your life even by worrying about these things? Verse 28, And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. Now, here's where Jesus starts with the second illustration pertaining to the clothing. So he talked about the food and drink with the birds, and now he's going to talk about the clothing aspect. And Lilies here um, likely refers to some, some sort of wildflowers, things that would spring up um, quickly uh, with very vibrant colors, but they're also gone um, very quickly. And the word that he uses for spin here um, refers to spinning thread or, or yarn, in other words, to make clothing. And so he says that these gloriously clothed flowers of the field, they don't work hard and spin thread to make clothing. The word for toil actually implies exhaustion from hard work. And he said, these beautiful flowers, they don't labor to be clothed, and yet they are clothed gloriously. Look at verse 29. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. They are arrayed in glorious clothing. Of course, not by worrying about it, not by driving themselves crazy with, with anxious toil because they are so worried about how they're going to be clothed. And he says that the glory that they're clothed with actually excels that of the glory of Solomon. Now, obviously, Solomon was the wealthiest king of Israel. He had what seems to be inexhaustible riches. When, when you go back in the Old Testament, you read some of the accounts of Solomon and, and, and his kingdom and, and the things that he built and the things that he did and, and just the, uh, the daily fare for his table and, and all these sort of things. It, it's, it's just unimaginable. Even, even in our terms today, it's still just so hard to imagine it. But now all the riches that Solomon had, all the power, all, all, the, all the connections that he would have had, he could not buy or manufacture clothing that was as glorious as the field flowers. Now, this is most likely a reference to the fact that the dyes that they had in those days were not really a sufficient quality to produce truly brilliant or vibrant colors of cloth. So he could not match um, those flowers in the field, no matter 
how much wealth that he had. He simply could not match what was there growing wild in the field. No, no amount of money could buy what simply was not available. So the, the point is comparable again to adding to one's life through worry. All the riches in, in the world could not have availed Solomon to be arrayed as gloriously as these flowers. Verse 30, Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? So Jesus has made a similar point about the birds that he's making now about the flowers. So first of all, Jesus acknowledges that God clothed those wildflowers. Again, they, they didn't do it. They didn't work for it. They didn't labor for it. They certainly didn't worry over it and produce it. No, God did it. And the implication is, again, this is a part of his care of his creation, showing, again, something that, that, might, seem, that might seem insignificant, that might seem trivial, these flowers that, that spring up suddenly, and, and though they're very vibrant and colorful and, and beautiful, nevertheless, they don't last very long, and they, they, they dry up, and, and, and they're done. But God cares for his creation. He points out that these flowers are a very, very short beauty in lifespan. And again, he moves from that lesser to the greater, and, and a number of Commentators pointed out some similarities to Proverbs and wisdom literature in, in this section, and, and there are a number of those, and that, that greater than or better than or more than comparison would be one of those things. If God does this for his flowers, again, here for just a very short time, seemingly insignificant and trivial, don't really serve any purpose, there's no great utility to them, Beautiful to look at for a very short amount of time. If God does this for his flowers, will he not do this for the people that he loves more than the flowers? And the obvious answer is yes. And Jesus uses this phrase, O ye of little faith. And it's a phrase that Jesus uses a few times and only a few times. And it refers to having little trust or little confidence or, or even little understanding. In other words, it's, it's the opposite of much worry. So Jesus is it's like he's saying, Oh, you of big worry and little faith. Verse 31, Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? So this is the concluding charge. Don't be anxious over food and drink and clothing for your life. And by this is meant that this worry should not dominate and shape and guide and control your life. Verse 32, For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. Now, the word for Gentiles, again, um, the ethnos, it means nations. Uh, just as before we saw, and there it was translated heathen, I think. Um, it, and essentially, the, the way that it's being used is, is to refer to unbelieving nations, those of, of pagan religions, those who were 
um, devotees to various idols and, and false gods. And he's saying that the nations who don't trust God are consumed with the pursuit of these basic things of life. And that word for seek means to seek diligently or to crave or, or demand. In other words, he says they give themselves wholly to it. They live for no higher purpose, you might say. And God having knowledge, God knows that you have need of all these things. God having knowledge means that he knows what we need and how to care for us, just like he does with the flowers of the field or the birds of the air. And back in verse 8, actually, earlier in this chapter, God's knowledge of those things that we have need of was actually motivation for us to pray simply in, in faith, not with vain repetitions and so on, which also referred to the unbelieving nations. Verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, the alternative that Jesus gives is to seek, and it's a different word here than in the previous verse, but it's to seek or to strive for the kingdom and for righteousness. Well, to seek his kingdom and righteousness first is to prioritize preparations for his coming kingdom. Preparations that would include, of course, repentance and faith, just like Jesus and John both preached. But it's also to embody his new covenant law commands, to, to live after them, to keep them. In other words, to live like true kingdom citizens here in this present age. Now, the promise here is that all these things, referring to these life necessities that's, that so many are so overcome with, with anxious worry about, all of these life necessities, he says, will be given unto you. Now, that it doesn't mean that you'll not have to work um, for them. That doesn't mean that you, um, you know, won't um, perhaps, you know, again, not have all that you want. But it means that you're not to be consumed with them, not to be driven by the worry about them so that they have first place in your time and attention. And in verse 34, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And this is sort of the final conclusion that Jesus drives toward. And he, he, the way he speaks here, he personifies tomorrow, almost as if tomorrow is a, you know, is a person, saying he will worry about the things that belongs to him. You know, don't, in other words, you don't need to steal worries from the future. Don't, don't make tomorrow's worries your troubles today. So it seems that Jesus intends that we should not be consumed with worry about what might happen in the future or tomorrow, as he, as he puts it here. And he ends on the note that today has trouble enough for us. So we don't need to add to it. And Again, if you remember the context, he's talking about this anxious worry that is controlling our lives. So in this passage here at the end of this chapter, Jesus has laid out two ways to live. Uh, we can be 
driven by either greed and indulgence or even worry and anxiety to be enslaved to money. Or we can be driven by the kingdom and righteousness to be slaves of God. Well, the first way, of course, leads to amassing wealth and possessions on earth where they are extremely uncertain and they are likely to go away one way or another. The second way leads to righteous works for the glory of God and accumulating of rich rewards in heaven where they are secure and will one day be given to us our possession forever. Now, I don't hear see Jesus saying that we never do or we never should worry, that we'll never have a worry in life. I don't, I don't believe that's his point at all. But I do see Jesus saying that we shouldn't be fixated on these. We shouldn't be controlled by these. If we're, if we're controlled by worry, for instance, we, we won't give to someone, perhaps someone that has some need, because we'll be too anxious over tomorrow's troubles. We, we, maybe we won't pray except for simply praying over our worry list and, because that's what occupies all of our thoughts and we're not even really thinking about the kingdom of God and his purposes or anything greater than that. Well, the point is we are to trust in God so we can work and we can also rest and we can pursue righteousness so that our lights shine and God is glorified. And if all of this seems a bit risky, we have a good word coming up in the next section when we get into chapter number seven.